This is James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Thanks, Libby. So this is the fourth and last week on our New Year Prayer Emphasis Series. And I'm going to be speaking on corporate prayer and ministry prayer. And uh, corporate prayer, um, if you're confused about this, is actually not um, praying that Target will have a really good sale. It's, um, there's always one of those people. It's a terrible joke. Um, just kidding. Uh, it's, it's whenever there's more than one person praying together. That's corporate prayer. And ministry prayer is when you are predominantly praying for someone else or someone else is praying for you. So it's, it's a form of corporate prayer where you are specifically praying for another person in relationship to one of their requests. And as we look at this, I think it's important for us to, to, to just keep in mind what we've talked about um, the last—this is, this is a different presentation. Um, see if you can grab the one for this week. Um, I do all kinds of confusing things like that to them. I apologize. Is to just keep in mind the lessons we learned the last three weeks. So three weeks ago, I, I, I preached on prayer, and I basically said this. If you look in Genesis chapter 5, in the family of faith out of Seth, walking with the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord just go together. They've always gone together. If you want to walk with the Lord, it assumes that you want to walk in his way. You believe he's there. You, and what that creates is a perfectly natural situation in which you would call on him. Right? And so prayer is, prayer is, is faith happening. It's one of the most rudimentary realities of prayer. And so if we don't pray at all, um, it just means there's something kind of amiss in what we're calling our faith. Because it, calling on the name of the Lord in some way just flows out of believing in God and walking with him. The second week, um, Lloyd talked about, um, he talked about how God rewards when people seek him, specifically in the context of prayer and fasting. But in a number of other places in scripture, it says God rewards those who earnestly seek him. It says in the Beatitudes that blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? It says because they will be filled. There's lots of places. All who knock, the door is open. Those who seek, find, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. There are lots of specific, direct, straightforward statements where God binds his own discretion toward us by saying if we do something, he will do something. Sometimes we get confused because we get confused by God's discretion, right? God can can God answer the prayer of a non-Christian just the way they pray it? Can he? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. And it can get really annoying if you're a Christian and praying a lot of stuff and like you see some person just kind of like praying that some idiotic thing that they've caused in their life would turn out okay and it does. And you're like, ah, oh, what is going on, right? God can do whatever he wants. He has, he has incredible discretion to answer prayers however he wants to. But that does not mean that where he has bound himself in promise, he will not fulfill his promise on the basis of his own character. When he says, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you because you will be filled. He has bound away his discretion in promise to you. When he says, he who 
Knocks, the doors open. Those who seek, find. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. And he is intentionally telling you in those things, he is not functioning in discretion. He is functioning in direct promissory response to faith if you'll have faith. Because God rewards those who seek him. But Lloyd also put forward a very important corollary. Those who seek him in obedience and in honesty. That is, you can't play games and believe you're functioning within the promise. You can play games and God can, in his discretion, reach out and minister to you in his answers to your prayers. But if you want to function within his prof- promises, you can't play games. There's this verse in First Peter that actually says something very similar to this. It says, husbands, be really careful how you treat your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers, it says. It says, be very careful how you treat your wives and you cooperate with them as the partner in your marriage because, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What is the assumption built into that, right? It said, if you are a jerk to your wife and then you go pray, that prayer isn't going anywhere. Right? So Lloyd talked a good bit about this, how like built into this whole concept of praying and God rewarding those who seek him is a certain kind of integrity. That's why James can say the prayer of the righteous man does a lot, or righteous woman. That is, that the person who's not playing games, the person who's obeying God in all ways they know how, and is moving towards him in faith, and then they pray. It says that God has bound himself to, the Bible all through has bound itself, God has bound himself in promise to act when such a person prays, and he will. And then the third thing Mike talked about last week is, he was talking about personal prayer when we just kind of, kind of, get aside and pray. And he said, listen, it's so important to recognize what Jesus says. He says, our Father who is in heaven, whose name is holy. And then he says, and then there, and then in the Lord's Prayer, there are these personal requests for things that are going on that we really need. Like, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses and deliver us from the evil one. Those are all personal needs that all of us have every single day. And then he said, right next to that, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, every time we go to pray, we have in our minds our, a father who is loving towards us and, and sees us as his personal responsibility and is engaged in our daily needs and simultaneously is absolutely king of everything, the king over the kingdom he is bringing into fruition and vision into the world, and towards which we are supposed to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That is, we are part of that kingdom. And there is this, we live in that You can't come to prayer and pray only to the Father who cares about you getting your daily bread, nor should you be so super spiritual to go to God and say, God, you're the Holy One in heaven. Your kingdom is all that matters. Um, You know, what do you want me to do? We live between both of those. God is both of those things, simultaneously in intention with each other. And whenever we go to prayer, we have to recognize who we are praying to. But even in the midst of, if we hold that all in our minds, when the first, in the first week I think I talked about 16 things that usually kind of hold us back from praying. And I would say that when we talk about corporate and ministry prayer, there are a bunch more things in addition to those, because once you add in another person, you're adding in pride and fear, because you're on display. Have you ever had an argument with somebody where— there were three people in the room and it went really bad and you just knew if that one extra person wasn't there, it would have gone fine. But the minute there was an audience, the whole thing unraveled, right? The minute you add in another person, it, there's lots more issues and there's lots of issues that people have with praying corporately and it's important to, rec- to recognize this. I put out on Facebook just like, hey, who's got a story about this, right? And there's at least, so there's, there's four things that came out. One was, the problem with corporate prayer when you pray with other people and God really answers their prayers is that you get what you prayed for. So there's this woman named Anita who I knew in high school. For and she says, so I prayed with my small group. We all prayed for me to grow in patience for five years. She said, and then I had four children in four years. She's so maybe one of the only women in the history of the world whose husband asked her to stop praying to grow in patience, right? So the, the other, another one is, is just saying something embarrassing, 
Just, you say something, you're like, oh, I wish I could get that back. So, for example, Adam Darbone, who was an intern here, and he's, he's a pastor in California, wrote, he said, before an intramural soccer game as a seminary student at Trinity, and we were playing against the football team, I prayed and thanked God for giving us bodies to play with. Not my best moment. <laughs> a physician in the church said, I was praying for my patient, and after I finished praying for her, my astute medical student observed that I was incorrect in praying that, Lord, we would like to lift up her blood pressure. There, <laughs> there are two people that confessed to actually praying out loud for fictional TV characters <laughs> who were at a particular moment of pr trouble in the season. One lady voted for some woman who got pregnant on Downton Abbey. Another guy prayed for Jack Bauer when he was being tortured by Chinese in that show. <laughs> and then they were like, oh! Right? And then part of it, too, is just what you come to think about prayer while watching other people pray. And sometimes feeling like you might not be up to snuff. This one woman who I worked with at a Christian camp said this. I remember the first time I went to a Bible study before I was a Christian, and it was all— um, it was like 20 young adults from this certain church, and we were sitting and listening to a few praying, and there was this one guy that literally went on praying for about five minutes straight, and I remember thinking, are you serious? This guy just keeps going and going and going, and I just want him to shut it. And he, seem, and he seemed so holy praying for this long, and it made me feel out of loop, and he was followed by a lot of people nodding their heads and mm-hmmming in agreement, and I thought this seemed like untouchable, like I could never achieve this type of prayer or closeness to God until a girl next to me leaned in over and whispered, whispered in my ear, dude, this guy just will not shut up. <laughs> now that was rude to say, but God used that rude moment to, she, and she said, it totally shattered the false notion that was creating in me. And I came, I later came to faith and she says, I've been praying for the last 14 years since, because that was just what I needed to hear about prayer. And then there's also the feeling of being humiliated. It's one thing to pray and pray and pray personally for something and nothing happened and to feel discouraged. It's another thing to pray for something over and over in front of other people and have nothing happen and feel humiliated. I remember I was on a mission trip in India one time, and after a service I preached at, there was this huge line of people that wanted to be prayed for. 90% of them had full-blown AIDS and were dying in this particular slum I was in, and they wanted me to pray for them to be healed. And so for two and a half hours, I prayed for 50 people that they would be healed. And I didn't see anything miraculous happen that I knew about, which is a little—it's not just discouraging. It feels a little humiliating, even though it really shouldn't. And because, well, the reason why that's important is this, is that when we recognize corporate prayer has its own set of inhibitions— um, it's very easy for us to say, well, the main mode of Christian prayer is personal prayer. And this thing called corporate prayer or ministry prayer, like that stuff that like varsity Christians do or like Christians who are like really into doing ministry and stuff. And it's not, it's not primary and it's, it's even kind of ceremonial. Like if you go to like a Bible study at somebody's houses, it sounds like a ceremonial event anyway, right? The problem is in the Bible— Corporate and ministry prayer, as opposed to private prayer, is actually the primary mode of biblical prayer. It's the primary mode of biblical prayer. If you went through the whole Bible and you looked at every situation of prayer, especially those in the New Testament, what you would find is, is that the vast majority of them presu presumed a plurality of people praying together or praying for a particular person. You would only find very few contexts of individual private prayer. Because in the Bible, corporate prayer and ministry prayer are the primary modes of prayer. And therefore, what that means is, is that if we want to be Christians who actually care about praying and calling on the name of the Lord as we walk with God, we need to recognize that we're mainly supposed to be praying with and for other people. And when I say pray for other people, I don't mean a prayer list. I mean that person is present and you put your hand on them or you pray right with them. And all of this has more inhibitions than praying in private prayer. And I went over 16 of those, and this is four more. We're, we're getting on to 20, and here's why this is important. This is why we refer to prayer as a spiritual—this is participatory if you want to—discipline. Spiritual discipline. 
A discipline is something that you are naturally inhibited to do, but because of a conviction, because you believe it's inherently good, you need to do it, it's worthwhile, you overcome the natural inhibition, and you make yourself do it because you believe it's right, and over time it becomes easier, and over time you become better at it. So for example, getting up before about 7.40 for me is a discipline, because I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I never want to do it. I, I just assume not do it. And yet, my life demands on most mornings that I get up before that time. And so, I just do. And now, on Tuesdays and Fridays, when I get up at 5.45 to go play basketball on the east side, I just pop out of bed because I, I, I know I need it. I know it's good for me. I know it's what I have to do. I do not want to get out of bed, but I pop right up and I go because I've been doing it for five years. I don't, I don't lay in bed anymore and go, oh, do I really want to get up? I don't know if I want to get up. <laughs> but if I don't go for three weeks, I will do that. But because it's a discipline, because I've been doing it for five years, the decision makes itself, my body just does what it's supposed to do, and I get up and I go. I have a friend who takes cold showers, like chilling showers, just to like tell his body what to do. And like, okay, just think about that. Could you do that? There, literally, you'd be like, no, I could never do that. Of course you could. Almost every human being for the history of the world has done that. We're just pansies. The whole lot of us. I mean, I just, just me thinking about that, I'd be like, oh, that sounds terrible. It's not like your nervous system will implode. Right? The first time would clearly be the worst time. Right? But there's no reason you couldn't do that. Right? That's what a discipline is all about. There are things in life that are hard. They're not complicated. They're just hard. And therefore, to do them is a—you can say it with me if you want—a discipline. And there are lots of things that we must do that are disciplines. They're not so complicated. They're fairly simple. But we have inhibitions towards them, and we have to make ourselves do them. And they're called disciplines. And if you don't do them— you are never going to be what you were meant to be. You're never going to be able to walk in faith, and you're going to be responding to and battered by everything in your, for your whole life. And prayer is one of the first disciplines of faith. And that fear that you feel, that inhibition you feel, if, if I said, turn to the person right next to you, share a prayer request to them, receive one from them, and pray for them right now. Like, some of you are actually—she's ready to go. But some of you are like, oh, that would be really weird. It's good, or it's a good thing I have my spouse here, because I wouldn't want to talk to another person. Yeah, that's—I mean, that's—right. That's why it's a discipline. And so we have to have kind of in our bones, one of the first actions of any kind of meaningful Christian faith is simply— we pray with and for other people. We pray with and for other people. We just pray with and for other people. We just pray with and for other people. And that is the primary mode of biblical prayer. Quit hiding in your prayer closet. So three quick things about this. One is corporate and ministry prayer is the primary form of biblical prayer. It's the primary form. So for example, Paul, or um, no, Mike isn't the Apostle Paul. Mike preached on the Lord's Prayer last week. Do you know how the Lord's Prayer starts? Our Father, who aren't in how do the name? The assumption went—so you'd be like, wait, no, no, no. Lloyd two weeks ago said, if you're going to pray, don't pray out in public, but go into your prayer closet thing, your, you know, your war room, and pray in there, and see what happens, and that's—isn't that—no, no. Jesus wasn't talking about prayer. He was talking about hypocrisy. He was talking about hypocrisy in giving. He was talking about hypocrisy in teaching. He was talking about hypocrisy in prayer. He was talking about hypocrisy. He was talking that whole section about being showy in your fasting, giving, and praying. And he's saying, don't do that. When you fast, give, and pray, don't be showy and therefore hypocritical, but be anonymous and do it. The point in that passage was not your main prayer is private prayer. When he says, this is how you should pray, he starts with the word our. That is, we are praying. If you look at Matthew 5, 44, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's one of the fun things about Greek that isn't true about modern English. You in Greek, singular and plural, are different words. So, like, if you read this in the English translation, you can't really tell when you read you if it's singular or plural. Now, back in the King James times, they actually had different words. And actually, in this case, the South actually has more advanced English because they have you and y'all, right? So, um, 
In this verse, both yous are plural. And why? Because it's not just you as a Christian that gets persecuted. It's the whole church. The whole name of Christ is going to have enemies. And the whole church should band together in praying for each other, supporting each other as we receive individual persecutions, and praying for the people who persecute us. Together, they are your enemies, and they persecute you, and you should pray for them. In almost every example in the book of Acts, in almost every example, it is a group of people praying for a particular thing, and God answers. The whole church was praying for Peter, and Peter gets released, and he shows up. There's only a few examples contrary to that, where, like, Paul gets knocked off his horse, and he's praying that God would do something, and he's by himself, and God sends Ananias to him. Very few examples like that. Almost all the examples are groups of people praying. You go to the epistles, all the letters of the New Testament, all the way through. Paul is saying, I'm praying this for the whole church. Will you, whole church, pray for me? You, whole church, pray these things for yourselves? All of it has this built-in presumption of a corporateness, and the reason we don't see that is because we bring the wrong assumption to the text. We bring a personal prayer assumption to the text, and so we read all the mentions of prayer about me praying for myself these things. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the text actually says. And part of that is based on our presumption of individuality. Guys, we're humans. Humans are virtually all exactly the same. We all need exactly the same thing in terms of our character. In terms of our sinfulness and our character, we all need love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We all need to repent. We all need to confess our sins. We all need healing. We all have good things in our life that we should praise God for and bad things in our life we should pray for. We all have everything, and we all need everything. And therefore, almost all prayer can be corporate. Praying with and for each other corporately and in ministry prayer is the primary mode of biblical and Christian prayer. And the second is, you can ask the question, well, what are we supposed to be doing then if we're doing that? And I think the James passage is pretty good on this, right? There's a number of things that come up in this passage. Is anyone in trouble? They should pray. Is anyone happy? They should sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? Now, this, that passage section can mean more than just physical sickness, but it cannot mean less. So you can expand it to everything that you can't control. But it still includes physical sickness and those sorts of things that you can't control. And if that happens, you should call the elders or you should call people of experienced and mature faith to come and pray for you so that you can be healed. And fourth, you should confess your sins to each other and act as Christ's little priests receiving your confession so you can come into the light. Because there is something that cannot be done when you confess your sins to God in private. There is a feeling of coming into the light. There's a part of it you can get by just confessing your sins to God in private, by just saying it out loud. There's a little part you get saying it inside your own head to God in private. There's significantly more if you just say it out loud to God in private. And then there is an enormous peace that doesn't really happen until you confess your sins to your real, live brothers and sisters and receive the word of Christ from them when they say, yeah, that was terrible, what you did. But Jesus died for God's enemies. He died, he died for the worst. He died for the murderer and the prostitute and the self-righteous. He died for all the most terrible people on earth, people who are greedy and ungenerous, and people who trample on the poor, and people who abuse other people. He died for everyone, and you are within everyone, and that thing stands no chance against the melting radiation of glory that comes from the cross of Christ. And you receive that from your brother and sister of Christ. When you speak truth, you receive back grace, and then they pray for you. And in this passage, you can see in a couple different verses, healing and forgiveness and reconciliation are bound to each other. It says, when the elders pray for the person who is sick, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven, which presumes something. That... It's possible the reason they're sick is because they sinned. It doesn't mean that if you're sick, you sinned. 
What it means is, is that when they pray for someone, one reason they're sick might be that they've sinned. And when the elders pray for that person who opens their life and asks for that prayer, not only will healing come, but forgiveness will come as well. And we know that even more clearly because in the very next verse it says, Therefore, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be forgiven. No, it says so that you may be healed. Now, we could go in a long discourse about this, about the relationship, um, the scientific relationship between guilt and brokenness and personal anguish and physical problems that come from that and the relationship between psychological healing and physical healing. We've learned a lot as modern scientific people. Um, and we're only like three to 4,000 years late to the scene on that, right? But in addition to the psychological and bodily relationship between the two, because God created us to be compositely souls and bodies, it should not surprise us when sin enters in and dissects us from ourselves and breaks the proper union of body and soul, that it would create problems. And those problems would not just create soul problems, they would create physical problems. That's not weird at all, right? The fact that we can describe it in terms of chemistry better doesn't actually change the fundamental spiritual fact. But in addition to that, God says that he both judicially increases harm sometimes in relationship to his judgment on us and supernaturally heals us in bringing about healing when these two things come together. When we confess our sins, we hear the word of forgiveness from another living person who believes the gospel, and then they pray for us to receive healing. Our, culturally, we have entirely lost our capacity to feel shame and regret, to open ourselves to confession and offer it before another person, and to speak the truth openly and accept ourselves for what we are, and allow them to respond to us and tell us what the gospel really says, and to engage in that. That is far more authentic than our little psychologically authentic introspective culture wants to imagine. And wants to do. And so we come up with all these other games we play about how we introspect and blah, blah, blah. And we're so, I'm so, everybody's introverted even when they're not. And I really know myself and know thyself is the root to internal psychological happiness. That is baloney. Confession. Coming out of the darkness and into the light. Saying, I'm just like you. And this is the darkness within me. And this is what I've done. And I'm not a good man. And I am trusting that Christ can forgive and save and change me. And then for, for you to actually trust another person who's been changed by the gospel and is just like you to say, you're right. And the gospel can change you and the power of God is available and there is healing and I'm going to pray for you because it's not about me. It's about what God can do in and through and is already doing in and through you. And in that moment, God spiritually brings real healing. And our secular miscreations of that, that are similar enough that they sound plausible, but that are entirely impotent to bring real change and healing, we have been sucking on for years. That well is dry, friends. But there is a fountain of life pouring from the throne of Christ for your healing. But it only comes when you embrace the discipline of the self-humiliation that comes from repentance and confession and can only come within the context of deep spiritual friendship. Accept no substitutes. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, I promised last, three weeks ago that um, my sermon this week would, would be really practical. So what I, I want to do now is say, within that context, how do you do it? How do you go about praying within four other people, doing ministry prayer and corporate prayer? And I, I'll, I'll base it under this sentence. You, you pray ministry prayer and corporate prayer toward God, but with a proper sense of the human creature, their pains, their nature, their condition, their preconceptions that you're dealing with and whom you're trying to love. And so let me give you some practical instructions for different situations. One is in worship services and prayer meetings. And this is understanding yourself as the human creature in this situation. And that is this. 
in order for us to respond in relationship to worship and prayer, we have to do with our bodies what convictionally we believe is right, even if our emotions don't support it energetically. Does that make sense? So we have to stand up, sing loud, maybe sway and clap depending on the worship leader. You know? And if you can't do two and four, just do one and two. It's fine. You know what I'm saying? But just you—and you, and, and you express—you you actually you pull up emotions in response to the truth declared, not the feelings possessed. Now, you may be like, now, Nick, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen, not only am I not wanting to do that, which I know you'd attack me for, but there's something inauthentic to try to, like— Create emotions about something. And my response is, no, there isn't. There are a number of Psalms in the Old Testament where they are—it says, oh, my soul. It's not even directed towards God. It's about God, but it says, my soul. What is it? Who is my soul? Right? It is my—my my soul in that context is my dull psychological state that does not feel what I should be feeling, that needs to wake up and respond to the truth. And so the psalm says, say to my soul this, the Lord has done this, and the Lord has done that, and the Lord is like this, and the Lord is—why? Because my dull, psychological, flatlined self needs to remember it's alive and come to life in response to this truth. If you want a practical example, let me give you this practical example. Every football team playing today, which sadly is only four, (laughs) is going to— Rile up their emotions completely out of a relationship to the present, the present reality that they're in. Every single one of them in the locker room and right before they go out of the field. They're going to get in a circle, and they're going to push each other, and they're going to have a little dance, and they're going to hit each other and kick each other in the mouth, and they're going to be like, who are we? And we're the, some kind of animal. What do we do? We're going to eat the legs off of these people, and what are we? I'm an animal, and we're going to kill these guys. And, blah, blah, blah. and they're going to—and you're going to be like— Meanwhile, there's like some girl who's like the trainer standing up. She'd be like, it's just 2.15. Like, what do you do? It's, I mean, it's still just a locker room. It's not being invaded by the Huns. <laughs> right? But what are they doing? They cannot trust their physiology and their emotional, internal, natural life to psychologically prepare themselves for what's going to happen when that ball is kicked off. They're not going to be prepared for it. Their, their actual emotional place, their mental place, and the structure of their will isn't going to be ready for when that other guy comes and hits them. And they know that. They know there is a future moment coming that they're going to have to live into that they're not in right now, and they have to psychologically prepare themselves for it now. And so they are going to rile themselves up on the basis of something they know and say something that may or may not be true so that they can emotionally get into a place where their will is ready to hit. Right? Listen, guys, that's all the workup prayer is and the, and the worship set is. When people are expressing themselves, you're like, are you usually like that? The answer is probably not. Is that inauthentic? No, it isn't. It isn't. Because they know they're about to go out into a week where their natural self isn't going to trust in Jesus, believe in God, want to follow him, or have faith. They know that. But they know it's going to be game time that's going to be way more important than anything that's going to happen this afternoon. And they know they have to be ready, and they've been forgetting the plays all week, and they've been forgetting their identity in Christ all week, and their emotions have been growing deader with all the the wicked sarcasm swirling around them, and all that's been happening all week, and they need to get into the locker room and let the truth about Jesus with the team rile them up to go out there and bust some heads, figuratively. To be ready emotionally, mentally, and in terms of their will for the week that they're going to face, that they're ready to do what God has called them to do, to be what Christ has made them. And they're ready to do it. And you just—and so if you've been to like a prayer meeting where people like rile themselves up praying, yeah, it is weird. Like, I get it. I get it. It is kind of weird. But that's what they're doing. And once you realize the logic of that— it might not be for you right this minute, but you un- you'll understand that it's not inauthentic. It's not inau- inauthentic. It's, it's recognizing what we are as the human creature. Make sense? Okay, let's go to other things in terms of praying for other people. Small group prayer. 
if you're in small group with prayer. Small group prayers are like notorious for like no praying and lots of gossiping, okay? So the rules for small group prayer are this. You just, discussion gets cut off with 20, 20 minutes left to go. Whatever, when the first person leaves to go pick up a kid, 20 minutes before that, you cut off discussion. I don't care who's crying, okay? Do it kindly. Do it kindly. Just be like, um, speaking of that, let's pray. Right? Just go in that. Two, no more than five minutes of prayer requests. You just cut it off. Um, and because you don't need to know the whole story for prayer requests. All you need to know is what we're praying for. That's all. Three, um, you follow the rules for what is a legitimate prayer request to small group, which eliminates 85% of prayer requests. And there are these three things. One is the prayer request has to be in the room. We're not praying for your dog or your sister's aunt's brother's coworker. In a small group, somebody once asked for us to pray for their, their coworker who had breast cancer. And I said, no. I said, we will pray for you as you minister to your coworker in this small group time. That after small group time breaks up, we can gather around her and pray for her. Her... Um, her friend who's at work. But we won't—you do that one time and everybody gets that these rules matter. And they will start saying, okay, here's what's happening in my life. And that totally changes the whole dynamics. Second is, not what would you like to happen in your life, but what would Jesus' prayer request for you be? If he was sitting right there in small group, what would he offer as his prayer request for you? And the minute you start thinking that way, you'll start asking for prayer requests that relate to character, Strength, faith, those kinds of things. And third, what is all of High Point Church or the whole church in Madison praying for? For God to do big picture. And then you pray for those things. Simple, direct prayers to God about those things. If you do those three, those three things, it will really revolutionize what prayer is like in small groups. I promise. I've heard lots of testimonies about this. And you'll find yourselves loving each other a lot more, a lot faster. Um, third, if you're, it's one-on-one, -on -one. you're with a friend or a mentor or something like that, just memorize these two statements. Let's pray right now, or can I pray about that right now? Don't wait, and you don't have to pray long. You just say, oh, let's pray right now, or can I pray right now? That's it. That's all there is to it. And then you pray for 12 seconds. If, if we would just do that— just those two sentences. If you and I, the lot of us, learned those two sentences and started using them, uh, we would fulfill the scripture that says, my house is to be called a house of prayer. And we wouldn't have to have big prayer meetings even. They would just be praying all the time. Every hallway, every doorway, every stairwell. It would ring with the sound of people praying for each other. Now, if you're, if you're talking with like a non-Christian at work, you do the same thing. You just ask. Okay, we're kind of alone right now. Would it be okay if I said a quick prayer and ask God to help with this situation? Or, and if they say no, or if it's not appropriate, be like, okay, I'm going to pray for that. Can I pray for that thing you just shared with me? And then after I pray for it for a while, I'm going to come back and ask you how that's going. So you go and you pray in your private prayer time, but then you come back to that person and you ask them what's going on with that to either adjust the prayer request or to ask them what God might have done. Family prayer. How many families, we just don't pray together at all. It's so easy to go through the day and that not to happen. So at the Gibson house, the rule is this. You will be at this table at 720. That's, that's the Gibson rule. You will be at this table at 720. Because we got to be at school by 8. We've got a 30-second drive. And, and listen, I don't, I, don't care, I don't care if you don't have your lunch packed by then. You don't get a lunch. Get up earlier. And I don't care if you haven't eaten enough breakfast. You can still be nibbling on your breakfast while we have family devotions. But you will be at this table at 7.20. Because we're having family devotions from 7.20 till 7.45 or 7.50, and it's going to include prayer. And we are going to pray together. Because I don't know if I can get them together for dinner. I think I have basketball practices in the evening and stuff like that. But I'm not giving up family devotions. And so for oftentimes for in our families, it really comes down to harnessing a moment and putting your stake in and saying, at this moment, we'll be together. And we're going to do this. And we also have to get over our problem as adults of feeling like we can't use our authority in the places God has given us authority. If you're a parent, God has given you authority to tell your kids what to do. Amen. Not necessarily, you can't always, see? That was my dad. I'm just kidding. 
Um, you can't necessarily tell them what to believe. You can tell them what they should believe, but you can tell them what to do. You will be at this table at 7.20. We are going to pray on Friday nights at this time. Nobody has practice. Nobody goes to games on this time of the week. You might have, maybe you have an hour and a half thing that you do one day of the week. Maybe you do whatever. But if you don't do something, if you don't make hard walls, it, it goes. Because this is important, not urgent. In one-on-one -on -one prayer, so now we're moving to ministry prayer. When you do one-on-one -on -one prayer, so you're going to pray for somebody else, stop counseling them. I mean, good heavens! <laughs> right? You come up for prayer, and you're the, you've signed up to do prayer. And what happens? You're like, oh, your husband's leaving you? Oh, it's his third mistress. Huh. Well, you know, when, when I one time, I had this, there was this girl I was dating in college. Like, just shut up! Just be like, that sounds horrible. Let's pray. And then afterwards, if the person is relationally lingering, then you can strike up a conversation or counsel them if they— But you and I, we're not on the prayer team because we're good counselors, right? Like, we don't demand MSWs from people on the prayer team. You have to believe in Jesus and want to point people to God. And so when you do one-on-one -on -one prayer, don't counsel! And don't—even worse, don't counsel in your prayer. Counseling prayers, ugh! Just pray. Just point to God, offer the prayer request, ask God to do something, thank him for hearing, and say, amen. And then if the, if the person's like, I don't think it took, you need to pray again, then just pray again. And if they want to talk, talk to them. If they want to take your advice, great. But pray first. And pray prayers, not counseling monologues. And if you want to be, there's lots of people in this church and that our church touches that need people to minister to them, especially in prayer. Up front, after service, people who we touch through our congregational care ministry. And the only thing I would say about this is, is that if you want to love people and care about them and minister to them, congregational care is a great thing to sign up for and be a part of. Here's, here's all I would say about prayer for that. You are not too cool to go to the training. I don't care how many things you, I don't care what prayer thing. I don't care if you like owned a prayer mountain in Tibet. Okay, I don't care. <laughs> you are not too cool to go to the prayer training and just do it. And there are going to be some great Sunday school um, and, and um, Sunday classes on giving spiritual counsel, but one of them coming up is going to be praying for other people. It's going to be three weeks on just how you pray for other people. And you can go to that. It's going to be coming up, and you'll hear about it. On mission trips, you're going to have to pray for people, right? That's just part of what happens on mission trips. And when you do that, one of the things you need to realize is that the church in other lands has been lied to in relationship to, if you believe in Jesus, God's going to make all your problems go away and you're going to get money. It's called the health-wealth gospel, and it's rampant throughout the world. And so when you pray for people, you should, on the basis of what it says in James, boldly pray for healing. You totally should do that. Most, the vast majority of what people are going to ask for is healing. And you should boldly pray for healing. God heals people all the time. I've seen a number of straight-up miraculous healings at this church in the five years I've been here. In fact, Rick Zindas was, put in, put, was one of the people who shared when I put it on Facebook. He's like, yeah, I was on this thing. We prayed for this lady because her back was terrible. And he's like, and then, like, it wasn't the next day, permanently. I mean, I had, so you should pray boldly for healing. Yet in your prayer, you should support the prayer with a proper theology of suffering. I've, str I've struggled with cyanitis and just being sick all the time for like 15 years now. I really want to be free of it. A bunch of the elders came and prayed for me today, anointed me with oil, prayed for me. And I believe that God may very well choose to heal me of that and just make me free of it. It's really been difficult for me. But what I also know is as a spiritual shepherd, affliction is good for me. It just, it's good for me to be afflicted because I, I understand. Otherwise, I, I won't really care about people. I'm that shallow. And so affliction is good for me. And so I understand that God may have certain purposes. Like he said to Paul, I mean, there's a point where Paul's like touching handkerchiefs and people were slapping people with him and they were getting healed. And Paul had some thorn that he prayed three times to get healed of. And God was like, nope, you get to keep that. And so when you pray for people on mission trips, but also here, 
You should pray boldly for healing and with a proper understanding of God's sovereignty in our suffering. And don't be mealy-mouthed about doctors, okay? That's a different thing. I don't have time for that. And then praying with kids. Um, I, I've often derogatorily attacked women for why I thought it was insane that when I put kids to bed, it takes nine minutes, and my wife put kids, put kids to bed, it takes 90, okay? And it's because I'm a husband, and I want my wife to hang out with me. Okay, that's the reason, right? Um, and there is some truth to that, like, you know, but um, at the end of the day is one of the best times to do prayer, ministry prayer with kids. In that, kids may have had a really bad day. All kind of, kids are vicious, John Jacques Rousseau was an idiot on this point. That kids are not these like noble savages. They're just savages. And so your daughter or son or whoever you're caring for, um, or even whoever's sleeping over at your house that night with another one of your kids, somebody might have called her stupid that day. And she's seven or nine or twelve, and she doesn't know she's not stupid, and she doesn't know that like that girl doesn't know what she's talking about. And she doesn't even know that even if she is stupid, it's fine. She doesn't, she, all she knows is like that's, that's twisting her heart into knots. And if you can be the kind of parent that can draw that out of her and then teach her to go to God with it, not just you. And you can say, how do you think God feels about that? What do you think we should say to God about this? and then point them to God, you can help them pray through and deal with things in a time where you wouldn't otherwise be able to do that. And by you, and the other thing is, is just, I teach my kids a lot because I'm a teacher. But it, there's no reason why we couldn't say, okay, half the time I'm going to open my mouth to teach my kids, I'm going to pray for them. Short, simple, straightforward, turn to God. I imagine that would not go badly. The problem is, is that I have inhibitions about praying for my kids and no inhibitions about, inhibitions about lecturing them. <laughs> That's good, right? And so, so I have to, because lecturing people and teaching isn't a discipline. It's a gift. Praying is a discipline. And so I have to push through my inhibition as to whether or not my preteen will scorn me for my abruptness in asking to pray for her. And pray for her. When we realize that prayer with and for each other is the primary mode of biblical prayer, not our private prayer, but prayer with and for each other, and when we realize that what James has clearly said is like, hey, look, if you're happy, praise God together. If you got trouble, pray to God about the trouble. If you're sick, or you're broken, there's stuff out of your control, you feel full of guilt, confess, pray for healing, seek out people that you know aren't playing games with God, and that God will listen to their prayers, even if you're playing games with God, and get them to pray for you, and pray for each other. And also, it's, you know, how, how would we know as a whole church that God was doing something in our midst? If a bunch of us, if we all just kind of prayed privately. How would you ever know, hey, there, were, there was this era where I was with this church in Madison called High Point, and in that time, God did something in our whole church, and it was so clear it was God. There's really only one way that happens. We all are praying for something together, and then God does it. And it's very improbable otherwise, because we've prayed a big kingdom-sized prayer. When we recognize these things and we start to actually overcome our inhibitions by, ex by exerting the discipline of prayer, we will sense a kind of authenticity in our own lives because we'll be walking with God and calling on his name. We'll recognize that we'll see very clearly that God rewards those who seek him and we'll see it in and among each other. We'll recognize that we're praying prayers for people's difficulties and towards God king God's kingdom all the time. And there will be an enormous amount of spiritual growth in us because of the way we affect each other. And people who have been broken and sick of heart for all the things they've hidden, they'll, they'll find healing in confession and in faith and in reconciliation. 
in ways they never have before. But you and I have got to realize that if we're supposed to pray with and for each other, we have to recognize that prayer is a discipline. It's not complicated. It's just hard. It's not complicated. It's just hard. And that's why prayer is a discipline. But when we discipline ourselves to do the work of priests that Christ has saved us to do, we will gain all the gracious benefits, experience the enjoyment of the fruit of doing the work of following him in these disciplines. It will, as we work in the discipline, we will see God extraordinarily multiplying everything out of his gracious generosity. And we will be a very different group of people without adding a single new activity to our schedule. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your name that is holy in heaven would be recognized on earth for what it is, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would give us this day our daily bread, everything that we really need in the moment, that you'd forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us, and we pray that you would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one and make us a vigilant people who love each other. We pray that you'd make us people who pray about our trouble together, who celebrate our happiness together, who pray for healing for each other because we believe you do things, and who confess our sins to each other and receive healing and reconciliation. And we pray that you'd help us to move in love and service towards each other in prayer in a way that recognizes the human creature we're dealing with in, in their loving frailty. We pray that you'd, you'd change this in us, that you'd grow us in this discipline and that you would affect the lives of many people, including our own, with great goods that come from walking in your disciplines. We pray in Christ's name, the great high priest. Amen.